Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say my guest in this program is one of America's most significant writers of the past half century, Paul Oster. Oster is best known for his novels, among them the New York Trilogy, The Brooklyn Follies, The Music of Chance and The Book of Illusions. But he first won acclaim with a memoir, his debut work, The Invention of Solitude, which he wrote in the aftermath of his father's sudden death. Oster returns to memoir, though he says he prefers to think of the book as a collection of autobiographical fragments, with his latest book, called Winter Journal. Whereas he began writing about his father shortly after he died, only now, ten years on from her death, has he movingly committed his mother to the page in this book. In some ways, she stands at the centre of the book, but it also contains Auster's thoughts on ageing, his relationships with women, and with his own body, from the childhood scars he still bears, to the panic attack that followed his mother's death. This has been the story of your life, he says. Whenever you come to a fork in the road, your body breaks down, for your body has always known what your mind doesn't know. Your body has always borne the brunt of your fears and inner battles. You have entered the winter of your life, Auster writes on the final page of Winter Journal, and on the evidence of this book, he has entered it with lucidity, courage and characteristic honesty. When we met in the Faber archive recently to record this interview, I began by asking Paul about his decision to write the book in the second person, as though addressed sotto voce to a sequence of his own younger selves. Yeah, it wasn't a conscious decision. It instinctively um, jumped forward as the only possible way to do this book. Because I don't think I have a very unique story to tell. It's not as that I think of my life as special or very different from anybody else's. And I think what I'm really trying to do in the book is talk about how similar we all are, how we live within our bodies in very similar ways and go through many of the same things, different variations, of course, but we all have pleasures and pains. We all have illnesses and we all get our knocks and bumps. So I think I think of myself as anybody, everybody. Therefore, upon reflection, it struck me that the first person would have been too exclusionary. There would have been too much focus on me as me, and that really wasn't what I was after. Well, the other option, of course, is the third person, which is something I've used in writing about myself in the past, but in this instance, it seemed to be too distant for the kind of intimate material I was dealing with. Therefore, second person, which has an intimacy to it, as if I'm in a very quiet inner dialogue with myself, but removing myself from myself just enough so I can take a look out there and see what's happening. And I think, too, at the same time, there's the other effect of the second person, which is to, I hope, draw the reader in in a, in a special way, so that, in a sense, he or she will feel that it's his or her story as well. And you mentioned the physical side, the fact that we are embodied creatures. That really is at present as a theme all the way throughout. Did, did, did that emerge, or did you, again, was that something that you knew when you started that thinking about your, your physical self was no, important? The, the, the aim, I think, was to, to write a, a kind of history of my body. The problem with writing histories is, um, uh, certainly a personal history, as one's memory is flawed, and there's so much I don't remember. There's so much of my life that's been obliterated. Uh, therefore, it's not a sequential narrative. 
The book, as you can tell from the first passages, jumps around in time. There are longer passages as the book develops and in which certain incidents are told in some detail. But nevertheless, it's a book of fragments, autobiographical fragments, mostly the things that have stayed with me most vividly for one reason or another. Some some events seem rather trivial, it seems to me, but there they are. Part of the um, inner narrative I walk around with inside myself. In America, my publisher said, well, on the cover, should we put a memoir? And I said, no, no, it's not a memoir. And it's certainly not an autobiographical work in the traditional sense. I, I have never read this kind of thing in the second person, for example, and something so fragmentary. So basically, I think of it as a literary work composed in the, in the manner of a piece of music. So it's more of a poem than a, than a narration. So would there be, be days when you would sit down and you really wouldn't know which direction you were going to be taken and things would would emerge when you began to excavate your memory? Well, there are many things that I cut out that I, I thought I would use and then I, I eliminated, but pretty much I charged forward. It was one of those rare instances when the book seems to be writing itself. Um, and God knows most of the books I've written don't f- happen that way. But every once in a while... There is something that just seems to be there already inside you without your being aware of it. And each time you sit down, your pen is somehow taking you to the next thing that, that you need to do. Death is, is constantly making its presence felt throughout the book, and often in a sudden, unexpected way. That, that seems to characterize the experiences that you've had of, of, of people close to you dying. And there's, an, there's a remarkable incident which you mention of a friend of yours being struck by lightning when you were 14. Mm. And, in, and in some ways that, that image then of the lightning bolt is, is one which is recurrent. Can you, can you say a bit about that experience and, and how, it, how it affected you? Well, you know, I've written about it before at length in, in uh, a work called The Red Notebook. And in The, in the Red Notebook, there's a, these are all sequences of true stories. These are things... Um, uh, the book... You know, it, it's only out in America as a, as a complete entity. But in my collected prose published by Faber, it's there as a complete entity too, under, under the title True Stories, which are four sequences, the first one being the Red Notebook. And then there's something called Why Write? And it's in that second section, Why Write, that I talk about the lightning story. And, um, well, there it was, a, a summer hike with about 20 other boys in, in the woods of upstate New York, and uh, we got caught in a terrible electric storm, a real bombardment of lightning and thunder, and um, crawling under a barbed wire fence in order to get to a clearing to escape the, the lightning, which is attracted to tall trees particularly. The boy right in front of me crawling under just as he was dead center under the barbed wire, uh, another flash of lightning hit the wire and electrocuted him. And um, I kept crawling through. I dragged him into the the meadow. I had no idea he was dead. It never even occurred to me. Uh, So I spent a good hour in this pounding storm rubbing his hands and trying to uh, revive him. So there was my first experience head on with death but also sudden, random, inexplicable death. 
And I think, in some sense, that's probably the most important thing that happened to me as a young person, the thing that changed the way I think about the world and made me understand how fragile it all is and how quickly it can end from one instant to another, literally an eye blink, and, and the world is over for somebody. And, and in this book, in, in Winter Journal, you write about a, a car accident which you and your, your family were involved in, which equally could, could easily have, have, have wiped you all out. So that, that sense of the eye blink, the contingency, that the, the fork in the road, as it were, is, is, is again present. Well, you know, I'm interested in the whole phenomenon of close scrapes. <laughs> you know, the almost thing, the things that almost happen or could have happened but don't. I think that's one way of reading one's personal life, also history. I mean, it's interesting to think about the wars that never broke out that could have, and the ones that did, and how fluky it is that they happened. Um, but I think everybody who gets to a certain age has been through a number of these uh, close calls, uh, things that could have done us in, but for one reason or another didn't. That car crash is one of the most recent of my experiences, and it was a devastating thing, and it was something I blame myself for, even though it wasn't entirely my fault, but I, I shouldn't have taken the the risk that I took uh, making a sharp turn on a, on a busy high, uh, thoroughfare in Brooklyn, not realizing that the car coming from the other direction was going much faster than I thought. And so it was a dead-on 90-degree collision. Uh, right into the driver's side of the car where my wife was sitting. So it, the impact was tremendous. The car spun out of control. We smashed into a lamppost. Um, the, the car was utterly demolished. All the glass was broken in all the windows. My daughter was in the back seat. She was 15, sleeping on a pile of quilts. Our dog was in the back as well. And there was some fear that my wife, Siri, Hustvet had a broken neck. I mean, we didn't know. We were we were taken to the hospital, and she was checked out. And fortunately, thank God, uh, she was all right. But we were so close to complete disaster that it is one of those chilling moments you you look back on and, and think uh, how easily it could have turned out otherwise. And beyond the physical impact. There was also a psychological impact, and you say in the book you haven't driven since then. And there are a number of cases in the book of you coming to terms with thinking about yourself differently, you know, saying that you no longer see yourself as heroic or no longer see yourself as tough. So a lot of the book is about about observing those changes and coming to terms with them, isn't it? Well, I think this is part of the evolution of, of life, and especially growing older, because... Um, Except for, you know, the, the normal things that happen to everybody, the physical ups and downs. I, I have been very strong and very healthy throughout my life. And then, of course, you hit a certain age and, and things begin breaking down. So it's, it's no longer possible to think of yourself as invulnerable and tough and strong. Um, you begin to weaken and uh, uh, you have to come to terms with this. And, you know, certain moral lapses that's that's how i would consider them or ethical lapses that disturb me a great deal that puzzle me that um make me feel that i i'm disqualified from you know the former heroic view i used to have of myself you you remember you know dickens and david copperfield you know whether i'll be 
grow up to become the hero of my own life or not. This story will tell. Well, we are all the heroes of our own lives, of course. But um, I think when we begin to understand uh, our failings, the moments when we haven't risen to the occasion, when we haven't done the right thing, when we've been weak or distracted or unfocused in one way or another, they hurt. And uh, I think they have to be faced head on and, and uh, absorbed into one's sense of who one is. Did you see in this book in some ways as a, a counterpart to the invention of solitude in which you wrote about your, your father? And in this book, you write extensively about your mother. Were you conscious of, of that sort of counterbalance? Yeah, well, of course. But, but at the same time, in the, first, the invention of solitude is in two parts. And the first part really is about my father. I mean, that was the, he was the subject, the prime subject of the first part. Whereas my mother is just one element in this book, an important one. Uh, but it's interesting. I, I, I started writing about my father about 10 days or two weeks after he died. There was a sense of tremendous urgency, needing to get it down on paper. And at the time, I had no idea I was writing a book. I was just writing. But with my mother, I, I couldn't write anything about her for nine years. Uh, I mean, she'd been dead for that long when I when I wrote these passages. It took me that long, I think, to assimilate the whole business. But then again, you see, uh, I had an ambiguous, somewhat troubled relationship with my father. And with my mother, there, there weren't many problems at all. It was clear and loving, if a bit bizarre at times, but but nevertheless, it was it was essentially a healthy connection. And um, probably her death undid me more than my father's did. And so it just took me that long to, to absorb it and be able to say something coherent about it. Mm. Yeah, so the year 2002 was a, was a very stressful year in, in many ways, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> all kinds of things were happening. That was the year she died, but it was the year that uh, I, I got some oh, physical problems that just kept springing up one thing after another. And so that's 10 years ago now. And um, so at 55, I felt a lot in a lot worse shape than I do now 10 years later at 65. It's supposed to be the opposite, but I, I'm, I think, more fit and healthy th now than then. Well, I mean, maybe this is bearing out what Jean-Louis Trintignant said to you, because you describe a reading that you were doing in France, and the French actor says, oh. how old are you, Paul? And you say you're 57, and he says, well, I, you know, I felt much older at 57 than I do at 74, so maybe, maybe it's just going to get better. Well, maybe. I mean, I think he was talking about some inner state of um, self-awareness or something. I, I keep pondering his words which seemed to me very deep and yet almost inexplicable. <laughs> so, yes, um, I guess maybe chronology has little to do with our sense of mortality, finally. And you quote the French writer Joubert, one must die lovable if one can, which is, in, I guess... In parentheses, <laughs> if one can. It's very, those parentheses are very beautiful, I think. Joubert's a writer I, I, I've translated and, and liked very much, and nobody knows who he, who he was. He was a late 18th, early 19th century Frenchman who uh, never published a book. He just wrote notebooks. And uh, anyway, I'm very fond of his, his writing. And he has a lot to say about many of the most important things about life. And, and that, that sentence is extraordinary, if one can. I referred to him twice. Another time, he has a much starker, more awful 
formulation simply, the end of life is bitter. And um, that's often the case, of course, but I think not always. You talk about a recurrent dream you have of, a con- of conversations with your late father, but you say when you wake up, you can never remember what you were saying. But do you ever speculate what that communication is about? What, what's, what, what your subconscious is, 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 is wishing you might be talking about? I think what I'm telling him, uh, you know, but I can't be sure, is probably just bringing up, up to date on what I've been up to since he uh, left this world uh, to reassure him that um, things didn't turn out as bleakly as he was predicting. <laughs> Quite simply that. Going back to your physical self, you, you talk about the importance of walking and writing, having almost that sort of that sort of musical, physical, dancing kind of aspect. Tell me about the importance of walking to you as a, as a writer. Well, you see, um, it seems to me that writing is a physical activity. I, most people don't think of it this way. But your body is engaged while you're writing. I mean, your hand is moving, you're, you're pressing your body forward on the desk, and um, it's not large movements, but then too, you see, the language itself is all about music. I mean, this is what distinguishes poetry and literature from, say, journalism. It really matters what the words sound like. It really matters what the rhythm of the sentence is and the, the music of the paragraph. Because I believe that meaning in the broadest sense of the word, is communicated in these subliminal ways to the reader. And um, by finding the right music, a writer is able to convey much more than is simply the you know dictionary definitions of the words on the page. So it all has a physical, musical, almost balletic uh, feel to it for me. And uh, this is what I work on. This is This is the whole effort of writing. It's not simply, you know, getting down the stories, but telling the stories in such a way that the, um, the music is doing as much work as the, um, as the meanings of the words themselves. And you're not a writer who, who, who works on a laptop. You write with a pen and then you, do you actually type out the manuscripts on a typewriter? Yeah, I have an old typewriter, which I've been very attached to for a long, long time. I'm not advocating it over computers. It just simply, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable with that keyboard. I, I like it. I like the resistance of the keys. It's a, it's, a, it's a manual typewriter. I've used computers, and the lack of resistance hurts my hands for some reason. I mean, I just uh, find it unpleasant, uh, whereas the manual typewriter with the resisting keys seems to build up the muscles in my hands, and I feel stronger rather than weaker. But the first drafts are always done by hand, and I work on a paragraph uh, for a long time, or as long as I need to, until I feel that it's ready. And then I type it up. And then I look at it cleanly on that new typed page and start attacking it again and making revisions. And then and then I move on to the next paragraph. And I, so I, I'm pretty much alternating between pen and, and typewriter all through the, the workday. And there's an extraordinary sequence, Paul, where you describe how a long period of writer's block comes to an end as a result of watching a, a dance rehearsal. And you were watching these dancers perform and then they would break off and someone would try to capture in words 
what had been happening and she wouldn't really manage to, to do it successfully. Can you say what it, what it was about that experience that suddenly made you sort of release you back into into the world of words with such enthusiasm? It's a great mystery to me. The person who was trying to articulate all this was the choreographer and it was an open rehearsal for for friends of, of her work in progress at the time. This is back in 1978, so it's, it's a long time ago. I think the very fact that, on the one hand, the dance was very beautiful and really captivated me. And I thought the dancers were extraordinary and so compelling to look at. Uh, these young people swirling and twirling and leaping in the across the floor of a high school gymnasium in Manhattan. And something inside me lifted watching them. But then to be interrupted and for the creator of this piece to get forward and try to explain what she'd been trying to accomplish and failing so miserably. The words just couldn't do justice to what the dancers had been doing. And I, I felt the rift between, you know, the complexity and mystery of the real world as opposed to the inadequacies of our language to express it or describe it. And somehow there was this enormous rift and I felt myself falling through that gap. And rather than depress me or scare me, I felt liberated. I don't know why. I don't know why. It was a, a, one of the most soaring oceanic feelings I've ever had in, in, in my life. And uh, having been so blocked for, for so long, um, it, it, did, it did just release me from, from my doubts. And I just started writing again right after that. And then, you see, just two weeks after that, and I'd written a little piece in the meantime, then my father died. It was the night I finished that piece that he died, and then I immediately began writing The Invention of Solitude, and somehow everything has followed from that ever since. At one point in the book, you move, I think, to upstate New York, and there's a house which has been inhabited by a pair of old spinsters and there's something there's something malevolent about the, the atmosphere and you say you don't sort of believe in all all that kind of thing but this house was an exception nonetheless the atmosphere of places that you have lived is clearly important because you reconstruct the entire chronology of all your addresses from 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 birth to to the present day tell tell me about excavating that bit of your past well you see if this was a book about my body i thought it was perfectly uh, plausible to talk about the places that have sheltered my body from the elements, right? It's sort of exoskeleton. Yeah, well, there, there it is. And uh, uh, I had never really computed all this, but, uh, and, I, and I, I, listen, I didn't put the places where I had lived for two weeks or four weeks or th three months, but only the long-term so-called permanent addresses. But still, there were 21 of them. And uh, when you consider that I've been in this, the last place for 20 years, there's a lot of moving that went on between the ages of uh, 18 and uh, and 45. I mean, because we're talking about just about 20 places. So each place triggered off memories, and I and I, I wrote about the things that came back to me most vividly about about each. Well, the uh, the place in Dutchess County, in New York State, was. Um, probably the weirdest place I've ever lived. And that's where my first marriage came to an end. So I have nothing but gloomy memories of the thing to begin with. But 
It was a haunted house. These two old spinsters lived there, the Stemmerman sisters. And I don't know how many years, but maybe 50 or 60 or even 70 years they had been in that old country house. And um, towards the end, one was blind and the other was deaf. And the stories that we heard were that they hated each other and they were constantly torturing each other. And the, uh, the deaf one would lock the blind one up in the closet. You'd hear her screaming up and down the road. Um, you know, very much like that grotesque movie from the 60s, you know, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I kept thinking of that film when I was told about the sisters. And the first thing we did, my first wife and I, was, you know, clean up the place. And we had bought quite a bit of furniture uh, along with the house. So there was a, a big armoire on the second floor, I remember. And we pulled it out from the wall to, you know, dust the floor and clean up behind. And there was a enormous dead crow, a desiccated crow, but a big one. And, uh, you know, blackbirds are bad omens in all literature. And uh, and to discover that the first day after we moved in seemed to cast some kind of evil spell over the whole experience. And, and sure enough, um, things didn't go well there at all. On top of which, it turned out that the Stemmerman sisters had been fascists, and they had all kinds of Nazi literature, John Birch literature in the house, and it it, it gave it a, a really a malevolent feel. You talked earlier, Paul, about interest in the in the contingencies of history and how one small thing could make the course of events run in a completely different direction. And the reader gets a very strong sense that if you hadn't met your your, your second wife then your life might have been entirely different because you talk about, you know, the mistakes you'd made and how you how you were a fool for love and so on. And yet today and for the last 30 years, that relationship seems to have been the thing that's, that's grounded you and, and held you together and, and, and made you the man you are. Well, you just said it. I, 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 I mean, it was just a fluke. We, 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 we had one person that we knew in common and it just so happened that I went to a poetry reading the same night that Siri did and she was accompanied by the the one common acquaintance, and we were introduced. That's how we met. So the odds against a meeting were very, very strong, but it happened. And uh, it was one of those lightning and thunder moments where, you know, we really fell for each other right away. And um, it's impossible to tell you how important this has been to my life. It It, it changed everything. And... Here we are, Siri and I, still together after all these years, and uh, it's difficult to think about what would have happened if this meeting hadn't taken place. Good God, hard to know, hard to know. Yeah, there's a, there's a moment that really that brought that home to me. I think it was, it, your mother has died, and Siri has gone to to be with her. Fact, she had gone, she already left uh, town, so you're on your own, and you've got a bottle of scotch, and you say she's the only one who knows the right questions to ask me. And I thought that was that was a very telling observation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just, yeah, it was too bad. Her father was about to celebrate his 80th birthday, and um, she, she came from Minnesota. Her parents still lived in Minnesota, and she went back to help her mother with the preparations for this big, big celebration. So, and I was supposed to join her in a few days with our daughter, who was who was going to school in Brooklyn, and that that's when my mother died. See, again, very suddenly, uh, with no warning, just the way my father died, no warning. Both of them just dropped dead, and not at terribly old ages either. So um, there I was on my own, and 
I didn't know what to do. So I started drinking and uh, at night because I couldn't go to sleep. And all this, the lack of sleep, the alcohol, enormous doses of coffee, a very unhappy conversation with a cousin led to um, a, a gigantic apocalyptic panic attack uh, uh, about two or three mornings after my mother died. Really a frightening, frightening episode. So I think there are about seven factors involved in this. Maybe if any one of them had been absent, it wouldn't have happened. But so what? You know, there it was. And that's how I manifested my grief in this um, uh, complete shutdown of my of my system. Was this a book during the writing of which you discovered things about yourself that you didn't know when you began it? Probably, probably. I think every book, when you, you discover things you didn't know. Otherwise, um, I don't think writing would be the adventure it is. Um, it's not all mapped out in advance. You have a feeling about what you want to do and what you want it to sound like. But then as you begin writing, things keep changing. I mean, there, there are things in here that I didn't know I was going to write about, certainly. Uh, I just had a, uh, uh, a premise and a desire to do it and a kind of propulsion that kept me going day to day and a kind of openness, too, to go wherever, wherever my memories took me. Paul Oster. Winter Journal is out now in hardback. For more information about it, and Paul Oster's other books, go to faber.co.uk. You'll find a short video interview with him on the Faber channel, on YouTube and Vimeo. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Just go to the iTunes store and type Faber Podcast in the search box, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. It's also available on SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.